We've only just begun to live White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way We've only begun Before the rising sun we fly class and yet the first class of April 2020. In a world that has changed markedly since January 2020. And as you know, I am a little bit of a philosopher and I believe that endings are but the beginnings of journeys of the soul. And in bidding farewell, we know how far we have yet to go because we've only just begun. And I want to start this class as a review of all you have learned in the many places that you have journeyed in this rather interesting introduction to the world of counselling and a big span and breadth of knowledge that has been incorporated into these last few months, not just from a text, but from the life and the goings-on in the globe and keeping things in context and remembering that in all of this, all we can do is breathe and be. Prof has spoken. This is her way, and she has been honoured to share this journey with you. As Madad Boss, one of our earlier psychologists and psychological theories, theorists that we discussed, says, whether we are aware of it or not, every human being dwells in tradition and history. Human memory is this constant dwelling in tradition and it constitutes that fundamental human characteristic of historicity. And I use that again to sort of draw us back to the notion that the field that we are studying 
and the field that we have chosen or have been in for a year or two or four or a couple of decades even is always drawn back to the memory, the constant dwelling in context and how we are human and we shall not escape that and nor should we ever want to because despite inhumanity there is so much humanity and beauty in the world for which I am grateful each day. And I draw your attention to a theory that we haven't had a chance to review um, because I believe it rests in the nature of our interpersonal relationships, our interrelationships, and the theories and eclectic way that I approach counselling lies very much in the understanding that we are all related. We all have similarities. And instead of dwelling on the differences, I've always believed that there are bridges between rather than divides and chasms that separate us. And so let's delve in just briefly at the end for a taster of what may yet come, a beginning, in an end, and look at interpersonal psychotherapy. Interpersonal psychotherapy comes from a long line of uh, interesting and individual inputs and it's different from some of the other theories that we've discussed in a few respects. First of all, it was developed by Gerald Clerman and his wife, Mina Weissman, and I always like seeing the yin and the yang being introduced into psychotherapy and therapy and we've had that before and interpersonal therapy is designed to be a brief system somewhat like the ideas of CBT and solution focused brief therapy it's designed to be around 12 to 16 sessions and it was originally designed as a research tool because Clerman was actually a psychiatrist, so he came from the medical model, the one that I have issues with, as we well know. And he had a basic belief that everything that we should use when treating psychiatric disorders should be tested before it's being recommended to the public at large. And I believe that's an interesting and good evidential base for a theory and for a therapy to be developed. But the one issue I always say is it's looking at diagnostic issues rather than humans as a whole. And what I would like to draw your attention to is that what he's looking at is if there's a specific disorder, there should be a treatment that is tailored to treating that specific disorder, somewhat like a medication even though there are no specific medications, really. <laughs> and lots of trial and error, especially when it comes to depression. But we're dealing with that with neuropsych. And uh, 
his method was developed to treat depression, which uh, back when it was started in development, he sort of went around it to develop a treatment manual. And it's somewhat a confusing term, interpersonal therapy, because it's been used for several different approaches. And the one that we are specifically speaking about is Clermans and the developments that were influenced by Clermans. So Adolf Meyer in 1957, he looked also at the importance of psychological and biological forces. And he also believed, as many of us do, that individuals develop psychiatric disorders as a result of things that are happening in the environment and their own ways to adapt or I use the word cope with issues that are happening in the environment. And again, we visit Harry Stack Sullivan, who in 1953 also was focusing on the importance of relationships and peers through our childhood and adolescence and how that may later affect our interpersonal relationships. And when people were discussing in their autobiography some of the factors that impacted them during their childhood, this is another way of looking at it and another lens of theory to look through. And finally, we have mentioned in passing because this is one that does deserve an entire course and is being granted it. John Bowlby's attachment and bonding theories, especially in the early childhood relationship of the mother and child. And these theorists were considered outside the mainstream of psychoanalytic writers at the time. And in terms of developing this, pro this program of therapy and researching it, uh, there's several important conclusions that came from it which determined the way that he treated depression. And the loss of social relationships is very key, and I love that because that goes back to our gender theory and Gilligan's um, code of relationships and not the, not the uh, moral of justice like Kohlberg, but the ethics of rapport and compassion and care. And uh, when women become depressed, he basically talks about the interaction between each other and the social and interpersonal stresses that happen, and especially stress in marriage which also affects, as we know and have discussed, the development of depression. And basically, Clerman identified four major problem areas that needed to be addressed when we're looking and treating depression, looking at and treating depression. And that is grief. And as you know, that's one of my favorite topics, interpersonal issues and problems and conflict. Again, another of my favorites, transitions of our roles in life. So moving between things successfully and our own limitations. So I, I don't like using words like deficits and I don't like using words like diagnosis and pathologizing things. I like to sort of look at a human 
as an entire being and the whole pieces rather than a piece of the pie. But when you're looking at certain things and able to draw them out in that context and being aware of that context, this is a very valid theoretical approach to therapy. And the continually testing of this also has brought a rich evidence base to it that many of the theories that I'm going to discuss later, just as a recap and review, do not have. And the reason for that is it's very difficult to test some of these theories um, because we are human and we don't operate in a lab. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Although today in COVID-19, <laughs> we are in labs right now. We are a whole world of a lab, um, social distancing. And so there has been continual testing of interpersonal therapy. And for that reason, it has a, a really great evidence basis of how well it succeeds in these particular areas of grief, interpersonal disputes, our role transitions, and our own interpersonal deficits. Um, I hate using that word, but that's the word they use. So I will use it for now, um, and I will change it to our own interpersonal issues or limitations that we have that may prohibit us from being as successful interpersonally as we would like, but that also lies in our intra personal issues. Again, so grief is, as we have discussed, um, a way that they describe as dealing with sadness. Part of the reason I wanted to follow on from my last lex lecture on endings and grief and bereavement was I love the way that interpersonal therapy, act psychotherapy actually integrates grief as a really important component of our life and um, as I mentioned in our last lecture grief is not just about the loss of a physical being or human or pet grief can also extend across the lifespan and may involve which we will talk about the role transitions and loss of dreams and loss of beliefs and just that growth across the lifespan and often our um, grief rather than pathologizing it, I always think of it as a normal range of emotions and not a psychiatric disorder, which I also like the um, interpersonal th psychotherapy acknowledging that it is a normal emotion. But as we discussed, there are so many difficulties around that for people in the process of mourning and grief is the emotion and mourning is the action, but they're so intricately intertwined depending upon culture, religion, family, um, the stigma attached to the loss of the loved one or the stigma attached, like so one grief would be a loss of a job or the fear of a loss of a job and grieving that possibility. So there's lots of different intricate um, difficulties that grief can provide for a person who's in mourning. And I also like that there's no, oh, if you've gone past six months, you are suffering a psychiatric disorder. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not laughing, I am flabbergasted. But because they acknowledge this complicated bereavement and complicated grief, which I have also talked about and um, want to develop more around a course of that, 
I really like the way that this is approached because it can present a really difficult problem when people experience a loss followed by another loss followed by another loss. And I know that you know and are, are very aware that this past year I have had three, four, sorry, four significant losses. My father, my uncle, our beautiful dog, and most recently my sister, all within one year and one week. And yet in all this being able to deal with that in a healthy way, maybe not so not so healthy because I do isolate, but that's the way that I deal with my grief. But I journal, I talk about my parents, I talk about the loss also of my mother through dementia and still having her here and loving that. So that is a really important part of this complicated grief that I love that interpersonal therapy, psychotherapy addresses. The second component of it that is an important piece that we just discussed is that interpersonal dispute component where often we have, as a result of our own inability to cope with, say, loss or grief, we may have struggles or issues or arguments or very high conflict areas and that can lead to depression. So the having those disputes and stuff with someone at home or at work can influence our cycles. And we'll go back to Bronfenbrenner with the um, microsystem, macrosystem, exosystem, uh, chronosystem. Everything is intertwined and interlinked. So we might be having a dispute with someone at work. We might have a dispute with a friend. We might have a dispute with our partner. We might have a dispute with our... Um, colleagues or people in community organizations or churches or any number of disputes like even your prof <laughs> you may have a dispute with and when you have those disputes and they spill over and start to impact us then we really need to look at ways of making those disputes be resolved in a healthier way. I haven't been able in this course to address role transitions as much as I would like, but we discussed this in grief and the dual process model of grief uh, where we acknowledge the loss and then we reintegrate and reorient and restore the life after the loss. And when we are in a role transition, and I discussed whether it's a new job Maybe you've gone from being the boss at work or, and now becoming a student where you've lost that managerial capacity and the only person you're a manager of is yourself and your study. Or maybe you've lost a partner and you're now not a husband or a wife. You are now a widow or a widower. And so it's how do we master that new role? And then... Sometimes those role transitions incorporate a loss that we're on a, we are not expecting, and that is the loss of a child, which usually falls outside the stream of chronology. And maybe there's a sudden death, such as what I just experienced with my sister, unexpected, not um, as traumatic as losing someone in the bushfires, which we just had in Australia, 
or and the floods because we had floods following. This has been a year. December 31st, bushfires, and December 31st, China announced to WHO that there is COVID-19. Two things. Anyway, and the world has changed. But if you're already prone to depression and you've already had grief and you've already had some disputes and struggles, this new role transition can be another additional layer. And again, that's where I talk about complicated grief and the life of complicated trauma. And finally, that last piece is that interpersonal deficit, and I prefer to say interpersonal limitations, where some individuals may be socially isolated. And this applies to all of us right now, because we have to be. Because I talked about that death system and that fear of death and prevention of death in order to protect others and be kind to others and ourselves, we need to socially isolate. We cannot have barbecues at our place. We cannot have dinner parties inviting people from level 31, level 22, level 6 and whoever else you want to invite along. I'm sorry, we need to socially distance. So this is a reality right now and that social isolation can have a huge issue because how do we negotiate and maintain friendships and sustain relationships in that? And in that, being stuck inside with somebody that you're not used to spending 24-7 and now you're being stuck there for one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, or as in my case, I'm already in week six now. <laughs> this is the start of my week six. So because some of us cannot manage that, then we have more conflict happening. So we go back to those interpersonal disputes. So try not to think again. I always caution people not to think of things in stages, such as the grief stages of Kubler-Ross. I like to think of them as possible phases that spiral in and out. And if you can think of a spiral rather than a step, I think that's a better way of looking at our lives as humans because we can spiral in and we think we're all good and we are great and then boom, something hits us and oh, guess I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And so as that description sort of identifies those four areas, the focus is on the here and now. Such a surprise that Prof likes this. <laughs> And the current problems in our relationships because basically what we're doing is trying to find out which is the prime problem and fit that problem into one of those four categories. And then that will directly impact the goal and the therapeutic approach that we have. And some people used and have mentioned the BDI, the Beck's Depression Inventory. Some people use different inventories. But the goals of this model are directly related to the assessment results of that um, test. So that will be the first thing. So uh, sometimes in your case conceptualizations, in your first thing, the first session, we discuss what we see what we hear, what we smell, what we observe, then the expressed feelings, the expressed emotions, the, um, the areas that the client identifies as important in his or her world, 
um, the goals that they have and the intensity of the problems and how that intensity impacts on their relationships. And that we can include, if we do have family in there, we can include comments by the partner, the child, the parent that go into that subjective piece. But the objective is looking at what we see, what we hear, the sensory things, and then any test results. And from there, that's where we develop interpersonal goals. And it's, as I said, directly related to the specific areas that the therapist identifies. And perhaps um, you talk about the specific syndrome. So for me as a Rogerian, I may not use you are depressed. And we have talked about the wording and how I am a Foucauldian and I believe languaging very much impacts our world. And I also look at Heidegger and I look at Kant and I look at many other people around the way that we present things to people because once you give them a label, they can use it in various ways. So I often say it sounds like you have some symptoms of being impacted by some depression. Not that you are depressed and I hope that you understand the difference between these two things. And then rather than say depression is a medical illness, I talk about what depression can look like. It can actually make you physically ill. And then I do psychoeducation around what the treatment is going to look like. So instead of treatment, I say, this is our plan for therapy. And in this one, they give the patient a sick roll. I change it, but this is a very, very clear enunciation of an outline of an interpersonal psychotherapy um, program. So what you're looking at is the initial phase where there is a diagnosis and that's where you do the testing. And then you assess whether it's the primary area is grief or interpersonal disputes or the role transition or the interpersonal limitations. And then you put the person in the role of, okay, what do we do now? And we look at a medication assessment if needed. Um, and that's where if you're a psychologist and a counsellor, you don't prescribe. You will be working with a GP or a psychiatrist for that prescriptive component. And once we've done that, we are looking at supporting the person through. So explaining the concepts and what we would call a contract, not like um, a signed contract, but a contract for the therapy and outline our ideas in collaboration with what we've heard or summating, summarizing what the client has said, agreeing on those goals and determining where the focus is going to be, and then describing the here and now focus and the need for the patient to be very honest and open and then to do an assessment of the current situation. And let's talk about length frequency, how often, that kind of stuff. It's very transparent and another reason I like it. The intermediate sessions, which are the middle phase, is, um, you know, just, again, once we've done that initial assessment, we come back to our next session and we're looking at starting the session, encouraging their affect. So if they're going to 
going to cry. Let them cry, let them be, let's talk about that, let's be open, let's have a look at their ways of communicating, let's uh, review through psychoeducation what might be some of the symptoms that they're experiencing. And then if it's grief, for example, we look at how that symptom is associated with the loss of the person, the death of my sister. Then we look at the relationship with my sister, for example. And then we look at the sequence and consequences of events around the death, either prior to, at the death or after the death. And what are the feelings around that, positive or negative? And consider ways of becoming involved with others in discussing that grief. Remember I had talked about it being a shared thing and there's taboos and Again, refer back to my other lecture on that grief component. And then if we're looking at the interpersonal dispute component, we want to identify what is the major dispute. Is it husband and wife? Is it parent and child? Is it parent with, you know, their, their mum and dad, even though they're parents, so parent and grandparent maybe. There's a whole bunch of different possibilities of dispute. Could be work, could be uh, friendship. And then have a look and again make a plan of action and the strategies are again to psychoeducate the person on what might be the symptoms, look at how the symptoms might be impacting the relationship and then let's see where, it, where that dispute is at. Is it impossible? Is it an impasse? Is it um, okay? We can't go back to that relationship and that could be something that happens with a domestic violent, domestically violent relationship. And then understand the nature of how um, these role expectations that we have of ourselves and of others can impact us and how we might need to renegotiate our role. And that's going into the next one, which is also role transitions, but let's finish this one. And are there parallels occurring in other relationships? So I mentioned the parallels in um, the American response to Hurricane Katrina with the global response to COVID-19, and there are parallels. There are definite differences because it is a global phenomenon and health workers are at risk of dying, which is was not common in, in natural disasters unless you're going in while the disaster is occurring, and that happens to first responders. But we want to look at the perpetuation of a dispute and how that is ongoing. And then for role transitions, again, um, and I've talked about this, so I won't go too much into that, is just the mourning of the loss and acceptance of the new role and look at different strategies of mastering a new role. And finally, we're looking at the interpersonal deficits. So what are some of the things that we need to look at is how is the limitation of the person's social skills, for example, um, increasing their social isolation? So right now we do have social isolation. It is a, a reality. What are we doing to reduce that? Are we Zooming? Are we 
Skyping? Are we talking on the phone? Are we texting? Are we emailing? Are we doing that old school, just writing a beautiful letter to the people that we care about, which is so beautiful to receive real cards that are written by people. And you know that I am looking forward to getting those. So the other thing that we're looking at is how to encourage social skills for building new relationships. And then we're looking at termination. And again, I love this interpersonal psychotherapy because it's very explicit in its initial phase, its middle phases, and its termination. It tells you you should be done in 12 to 16 sessions. I always love that when I see, oh, you know, if you've reached your 12th session and you haven't finished, then mm. <laughs> some problems there. But I think that people really need to understand that there's, there's a guideline and sometimes those guidelines don't work. But if we can stick to the parameters as much as is possible and then say another thing happens so that you're in the, you're in the 10th session, you're discussing termination and then another death occurs. Are you going to terminate that? Well, I would say no. <laughs> and, um, and then finally, uh, not something that's really mentioned too much here is the techniques, the specific techniques that I use. So whether you're encouraging affect, whether you're clarifying, whether you're um, analyzing how their communication styles are, and using very transparently, I use this word a lot, being transparent about the therapeutic relationship and some of the behavior change techniques. And what you'll note is that, um, of course, it integrates a number of different things. <laughs> so you are looking at um, increasing affect and encouraging expressions of pain when you're talking at affect, encouraging grief and crying, encouraging um, expressions of that. And you are clarifying things for a client to make it clear and help them understand what's been going on and the established patterns that they have. And then also by being using the um, therapeutic relationship, as a basis, you can discuss communication ways and then you can talk about growth and behavior change. And it's a beautiful way of using the session as a coping mechanism and a new tool in the client's toolkit. And let's talk about termination because we are terminating this class after this class. <laughs> And uh, I have explicitly discussed that the, discuss that the end of this class comes with an exam. This, the end of this class comes with, you know, some farewells. But it is also the beginning of a new phase, which is the start of the next step or the next phase. And I also have encouraged you to look at what you have learned across these mere three months and the gains that you have made and the strengths that you have to survive in what has been, without even me mentioning the bushfires and the floods and the death of my sister, just COVID-19 in and of itself in the last three months has been enough. So um, as I keep saying, um, part of the reason that I am saying is I keep looking at how I've managed to swim, just keep swimming like Dory says, um, in Finding Nemo, one of my favorite movies, 
just keep swimming and just focus on the here and now. And I do really appreciate the techniques and the um, ways in which interpersonal psychotherapy can address so many things and I encourage you to review it, look at it, and then um, try to incorporate some of that. But not now. This is for later. I am now going to move into just a review of our course thus far and remind you to breathe. You've got this, okay? As you know, I am a big fan of Irving Yalom and existentialism and um, Nietzsche and Sartre and Heidegger and uh, Dostoevsky. Um, and to begin the, the end of our course and the review of um, the psychotherapies and the course that we've structured, across these last few months, I want to sort of just draw your attention to how much we have covered. And we started with psychoanalysis, looking at um, drive, ego, object relations, self-psychology, relational psychoanalysis. We didn't touch on Jungian analysis, as we didn't have time, but it is one of my favorites. And again, dream therapy is something that I really encourage you to look at. But remember, people who are training as Freudian and Jungian analysts are training for a minimum of seven to eight years. So if you're thinking that five years is a long time or two and a half years is a long time, <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> we have also, um, of course, discussed Adlerian therapy, existential therapy, person-centered therapy, Gestalt therapy, behavior therapy, rational emotive behavior therapy, otherwise it's known as REBT, cognitive therapy or CBT more in effect, some reality therapy, solution focused therapy, uh, touched on narrative therapy and touched on family therapy and we also focused on feminist therapy. And I'm going to end this brief podcast on this note. You've come so far and yet you've only just begun and look at all you have learned. So at this point, I'm going to stop this podcast and invite you just to review what you've learned quickly before we start to enter into that review of comparing our theories and looking at the strengths and some of the limitations and what the basic concepts are, the goals and essential approaches to assessment. And I'd like you to look at your comparison and critique in Shaft because that's a brilliant place to start. And I shall see you soon. And I'd like to start the second part of our review and reflections on the first three months of 2020. 2020 will go down as a definite cohort effect <laughs> in more ways than one. And I'm going to read from your mum again. Surprise, surprise. 
To put the basis here, I'd like to start with several reasons that you already know I discuss and focus on death. And um, there are several good reasons we should confront death in the course of therapy. And I'm talking about endings here. So death can be viewed in many different ways. But first, I want you to keep in mind that therapy is a deep and comprehensive exploration into the course and meaning of one's life. Given the centrality of death in our existence, given that life and death are interdependent, how can we possibly ignore it? Yulam continues, from the beginning of written thought, humans have realized that everything fades, that we fear the fading, and that we must find a way to live despite the fear and the fading. And psychotherapists cannot afford to ignore the many great thinkers who have concluded that learning to live well is to learn to die well. Thank you, Irving Yalom. And so when we start looking at all the breadth of <laughs> theorists and therapies and theories that we have um, discussed across this period of time, I'll just remind you, we have started with Freud and psychoanalysis and drive theory. We've moved through and we looked at Erickson and Anna Freud um, as well in that object relation, self-psychology and relational psychoanalysis period. We did not look at Jungian analysis and went to straight through Adlerian existentialist, person-centered therapy, looking at Carl Rogers, Gestalt therapy, behavior therapy, REBT, CBT, RT, <laughs> SFBT, <laughs> Narrative therapy, feminist therapy, and family therapy, although we only touched on those two. And as we look at them, I'd like to get you to think about the scientific evidence supporting the theory. And I just spoke about one, which was the interpersonal psychotherapy, which actually has a really good basis of evidentiary support, simply because... It was used for research and it's well researched and a lot of evidence around what is good and what is working. Another one that I previously talked about was acceptance and commitment therapy, which is ACT, which is also gaining in a lot of research and evidence base about its efficaciousness. So let's have a look at the ones that really don't have much or if any scientific evidence and of course we're looking at Jungian and Gestalt therapy. We move sort of towards the the greatest amount and that would be we're sort of still in existentialist and person-centered, um, Adlerian, still sort of midway now to behavior therapy, reality therapy, feminist and solution focused. And then we start to look at family systems and we're starting to get up to the more well-evidenced researchers and therapies and theories. 
with CBT and REBT having a lot and sitting in there we have many others but those are the ones that we've mainly touched on. So when we think about using theories a lot of people in the psychology world that are very clinical and diagnostic and as I say that medical based model they look more at the gold standard of the evidence basis and there's a reason for that because it's been proved to work. However there's also um, personal anecdotes and a lot of other interesting evidences that are not necessarily uh, attributed or accredited or accepted by a science-based model. So I do want to caution you that although some of them like Jungian Gestalt therapy and existentialist and person-centered and Adlerian and behavior and narrative etc. have sort of lesser research and lesser efficacious evidence-based that does not mean that they are not of worth and value and in fact can be more valuable than some of the others depending upon the presenting issue in your client. Now let's look at um, the difference between um, the attention to unconscious processes. So when we're talking about the unconscious, we're talking about those um, cognitive and psychological issues or schemas or um, beliefs that are not necessarily in our consciousness at all times. And of course, when we're looking at the attention to unconscious processes, Jungian and psychoanalytic standards are having a great amount of emphasis on those unconscious processes. But then moving back along the way, back to sort of where there is not really any attention to those unconscious processes or very little as compared, Adlerian existentialism and Gestalt therapy don't necessarily pay such a great amount of attention to unconscious processes in ex Explicitly, like they are uncon, they look at it unconscious, and that sorry, I guess that didn't make sense. So, Gestalt, Adlerian, and existentialism pay more attention to unconscious processes than, say, um, behavior therapy, REBT, reality therapy, and solution focused therapy. However, not as much as Jungian therapy or Freudian and psychoanalytic therapy. Hopefully that makes better sense. And then moving back along towards where there's less attention paid, which I already mentioned, the thing that uh, it's important to note is that even though there may not be this explicit, um, the explicit attention paid to unconscious processes, sometimes it underlies some of the techniques that are used in the therapy. So person-centered cognitive family systems and narrative do have some basis in understanding that there's some other processes that may be at work. And an interesting thing that the text says is that this is not applicable to feminist theory. Whereas there are actual arguments to say that whilst we might not have the ego and the sex drive, um, that feminists may not have that ego and sex drive front and foremost, they actually do have the unconscious processes 
of women wanting to empower themselves and try and exert power in a world that very often takes power away or has none for a woman in the first place. There are specific techniques associated with therapies and I've already gone through some but of course we know that the ones with the greatest amount are the ones with very prescribed ABC, black and white, cognitive, behavioral, REBT and solution focused therapies. They are very easy to um, redo, there's models of them, there's tons and tons of ways to do it and uh, tons and tons of manuals of how to do it. And interpersonal therapy could almost fit in that as well. It's sort of a little bit less so than behavioral, but it has a great amount. So you've got re reality, gestalt, family systems and narrative that have specific techniques associated with them. Now I would like to also insert that interpersonal psychotherapy. And as I also said um, in last week's lecture, ACT. Now, as we're moving back um, and part of the issues with uh, researching these, this is why there's a little less evidence base, is the Jungian and the logotherapy and the feminist therapy because there's specific techniques often are pulled from other places and psychoanalysis fits in that too. And person-centered and existentialism uh, it's a very eclectic model and specific techniques are basically unconditional positive regard and umwelt, mitwelt, eigenwelt and uh, umwelt in existentialism and just basically drawing people's attention to that. And there are specific techniques, but they're more associated uh, with, say, gestalt or bringing people into the present moment, okay? I think it's also important to note that part of the reason that we have different techniques and specific things are the goals of the therapy. And I always talk about what are the goals and um, hoping that they are collaboratively, collaboratively arrived at with the client. And for psychoanalysis, um, the change in personality and character structure and the resolution of unconscious conflicts and um, a reconstruction and a reinterpretation of childhood experiences is very much the goal of therapy. And Jungian analysis, which we didn't get into, is just individuation and integration of your conscious and unconscious. Whereas Adlerian therapy, along with a number of other therapies, is to increase our social connectivity, our interest in our ability to be successful in a social world. And existential therapy, again, to establish our own authenticity, to find who we are and find a meaning for why we are here. So to fully live in the moment and experience life and existence and reading your lom and just placing us in a world of real living because we know we are really going to die. With uh, Gestalt therapy, the person's feelings are brought to their awareness and, and then that is to integrate them into a more harmonious self so that there's more growth and responsibility and maturity that is arising from 
the therapy itself. Behaviour therapy, REBT, cognitive therapy, basically and reality therapy are often looking at specific behaviours and minimising emotional issues and cognitive distortions so that you can help a person um, take responsibility for themselves and find ways to establish a new, more co healthy coping mechanism in the world and get rid of some of those defeating behaviours. With the, the goals of constructivist therapies, and often they're solution-focused, so kind of like that interpersonal psychotherapy, that is a constructivist therapy, but solution-focused and narrative therapy see uh, the human as a person who has managed and coped. And yes, there may be some issues, but you've survived. Let's build on those strengths. And a feminist therapist is going to have the goals of questioning what's going on in society and how that societal impact has been upon us personally, whether it's destroyed our self-esteem, whether it has... Um, made us feel disempowered or out of control of many things and looking at our gender roles and gender expectations and societal expectations. And to become more aware of these things and to build self-efficacy, to build self-confidence and to build uh, a knowledge of how the world is working around you so that you can change some of the constructs. And basically, I think it's really important to have that view of the goals when you're looking at the specific techniques because you are going to align your therapy of choice with the client's goals, the goals of the therapy, and use the specific techniques as a result of what you have come up with collaboratively. Another factor, though, that we need to consider even after we've looked at um, the therapeutic techniques, and there's many, and, you know, psychoanalysis is free association, empathy, what's the resistance, um, being immediate in Adlerian therapy, encouraging, acting as if, catching oneself, and doing the paradoxical intentions and having homework and task setting, which fits in also with cognitive behavioural and behaviour therapy and having a lot of these homework settings. In existential therapy, the techniques are more about addressing the issues of living and dying and our responsibility to choose to live. And that freedom in and of itself is actually a suffering so Frankel looked at, you know, paradoxical intention in a different way and Socratic dialogue and lots of different attitude modulation. So looking at just those different techniques, some, of course, are going to take longer than others. And that is why when I ask you to think about your therapy program, Choosing a therapy that aligns with a the client goal, 
choosing a therapy with your specific and most comfortable situation in terms of your expertise and experience, especially as a beginning therapist, is going to actually possibly direct you to a particular duration of therapy. Because if you're choosing to work with a client where you know they've only got an X amount, X amount of money, the fee is important because you've got to make a living, you might choose to do brief therapies such as solution-focused, a family systems uh, approach, behavior, cognitive, REBT, um, and the one that I just mentioned, which was interpersonal psychotherapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. Narrative can be brief, but narrative can also fall into a moderate, longer one. And reality therapy and Adlerian therapy, person-centered and gestalt, are often in the year duration and can flex a little bit less and a little bit more. But as I mentioned, if you want to be a fully trained existential or psychoanalyst or existentialist or psychoanalytic or Jungian therapist, you have to train for many years because your therapy with your clients is going to take several years minimum. And as I keep saying to you, part of the reason and one of the questions I've asked you is why do you need to know your own triggers? Why do you need to experience counseling? That is the theory and the basis of the understanding of how you can be a Freud, Freudian, Jungian psychoanalyst or become an existentialist. You have to understand so many different complex concepts that just aren't written down in a behavioral or CBT or REBT manual. And that is where that unconscious, incorporating the unconscious into the therapy can take many years to unravel and dream work. Um, and that's part of the reason I didn't go into Jungian therapy with you is because the amount of time to actually try to get a grasp of understanding is in and of itself years. So <laughs> that is part of the um, reasoning around that. So duration of therapy goes from brief, solution-focused brief therapy, like behavior therapy, CBT, REBT, to the really longer several years ones, which includes psychoanalysis and Jungian therapy. And feminist therapy can be any of these, can fit because it draws, of course, from all different um, mediums and all different theories and uses the one that's most applicable in relation to the expressed desires of the client. So just to give you a bit of a basis on what might work for what, um, if we're going to think of this diagnostically, which of course Prof doesn't like. But for example, depression can be treated by a number of different therapies in a number of different ways. And you can have short-term psychodynamic therapy, you can have gestalt therapy, behavior therapy, C cognitive therapy or CBT, and again, interpersonal therapy and ACT. So these all treat depression. But if you've got something like um, obsessive compulsive disorder or general anxiety disorder, and a lot of these 
anxiety-based disorders, behavior therapy and cognitive therapy are two that are very much advised to deal with those. And behavior therapy also can work with a number of different things, including post-traumatic stress disorder. And cognitive therapy, CBT, can be a good one to use if you have substance abuse. It's well researched in being effective in, in that. That is not to say that any of these other therapies can't be used. And in fact, um, being a person-centered Rogerian therapist, I believe that every, every single therapy starts with that and building the relationship. And from there, that's where you decide whether you're going to go into, you know, CBT, REBT, um, behavioral therapy, or the more complex ones such as narrative, feminist, um, interpersonal therapy is, is complex, but not as complex, say, as Jungian or psychoanalytic. And hopefully that makes sense to you after having reviewed the course and reviewed what you're learning. That difference in time and duration and what's evidence-based may be an impact upon what you choose to do with your clients. The other thing that is really important to think about is the time orientation of therapy. So when when you do your initial session with a client, you're looking at how they are oriented. Are they able to stay in the present moment? Do they seem to have a clear concept of what's happened in the past, what's happened you know, just recently, being able to chronologically place things in time and to separate future, past and present. Very key cognitive abilities and do indicate to us the capacity of your client. So for some of our therapies, the time orientation of the therapy may be attuned to some of the issues that you see presenting in that client orientation. So for example, to, I focus often in the present, but sometimes you do go back to the past and sometimes you look at the future and it depends on what the presenting issue is. One of the things that I assess if I have a suicidal client is, do they have hope for the future? Do they have plans for the future? Because that's a very key assessment in understanding that they still have a wish to be here. But often I'm in the present system. So I'm looking at feminist, existential, person-centered, um, solution-focused, ACT, interpersonal psychotherapy, cognitive, um, and then if you're really looking at the future, often narrative will take the future into play. But what is very key is it also takes the past into play because you want to look at the stories that have been created and the core narratives of that person, how they've been developed, so then you can apply them to future work as well. And of course, we know that psychoanalysis and Jungian therapy is very much focused on the childhood and the past. And in terms of the ability of the client to, for their belief, come to some sort of resolution or reframing or um, solving of conflicts that happened in the childhood that have been carried through and had an impact on the person 
as they have grown and developed, regardless of whether they're adolescent, middle-aged or a senior. And that is why knowing the time orientation of the theory is very important, again, in aligning the type of therapy you are going to use with your client. Hopefully that makes sense. And if it doesn't, you know what to do, right? Email prof. <laughs> and one small note um, before we move on to the degree to which these theories can be integrated into other theories. And we've discussed how sometimes it's very confusing because we have paradoxical intention in existentialism and we also have it in um, other things like Adlerian. <laughs> Sorry, we sort of go, what, what are we talking about? But I just also want to draw your attention to some of the issues that are associated with these theories. And I've talked a lot about gender-based issues and multicultural um, contexts and how these issues do permeate uh, the ways that we work with clients and do infiltrate us in ways that we don't know um, exactly what is happening um, in ourselves unless we explicitly look at it. And that was one of, I think, the most difficult pieces of this class and one of your biggest learnings is in order to accept another individual without judgment, which is that unconditional positive regard so central to um, person-centered theory, one has to know what your own values and ethics are so that you can, to the best of your ability, remembering we are human and we are not perfect, to the best of your ability, be able to choose a therapy with somebody that is going to be aware of those issues and address them either transparently in session or be very transparent about the fact that, you know what, I am not aware of life as a homosexual. I am not in agreement with that in terms of my religion. However, you as a human deserve the right to therapy and until I can find somebody that will align with you and I can refer you to, I am so blessed and honoured that you've come into my session to work with me and let's just start with your story. So I guess noting gender issues, noting that psychotherapy and including psychoanalysis specifically, that we've talked about how many of these theories are developed by white males and often white males from a previous century, well, now it is a previous century, but I mean, even the late 1800s and early 1900s, we're talking developments of 100 years, which in the context of today's world just may not apply. And although Freud has been criticised, we can also see that there's um, some contemporaneous developments that have try to address those gender-based uh, white male patriarchal paradigms that operate around the globe and that noting that feminist theory 
has basically had a really great impact on bringing these gender issues to the thought, the forefront of life. And yes, we are still struggling. Um, just yesterday, uh, a ministry in Malaysia who is supposedly for women <laughs> brought out a uh, poster about how to operate in COVID-19 that was very, 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 did I say very? Sexist. And um, drew a lot of criticism, much deserved. So the techniques that are employed in the comparisons and critiques and issues are very much based around the roles, the societal expectations, our religion, our values, our morals. And we have discussed all this, and this is where I want you to be very proud of the struggle you have gone through and the struggle of aligning beliefs of being spoon-fed your learning versus being an active participant uh, in it and bringing to the table your thoughts and your critical analysis and I appreciate that struggle and the multicultural issues again are we talking about most therapies that are written by white males uh, some females and some that have actually been written by females of other cultures, but predominantly when we're talking about psychology and psychotherapy, we are looking at a Western idea rather than a Buddhist or an Asian or a non-Western um, thought. And that there's a whole bunch of reasons around that because maybe it's not accepted. There will just be strong and silent, which is very cultural and very old school white male patriarch as well as Asian. But... Um, for people like uh, Adler and Erickson, there's been a bit of a, a change in a, a swing towards understanding culture. So Freud, Jung and Adler have had a real issue with culture, but Erickson uh, has really changed some of that. And Jungian analysis, analysis ugh, Jungian analysts, really need to know myths and folklore to be able to work with the shadow and to be able to work with dreams. So that understanding of that collective unconscious of the clients basically works to incorporate many cultural beliefs and myths and religions and it's really quite capable of incorporating a number of things that we may have traditionally thought was not possible given who developed it and um, the ways that it was arose in its history. And Freud, of course, <laughs> with the male-centered ego drive and the, the white um, Jewish background. So this medicalized male model, yes, we just have to acknowledge it. It is um, an impact on the multiculturality and it is one of the critiques of many of our theories along with the gender-based biases. Now, one of the things that we've also talked about is that sort of eclectic use of different theories. And when psychotherapy and psychoanalysis first started out, there really was only one theory. But now we are in 2020 
And since the 50s, there's been a real move towards the integration of theories. And that's what I was talking about with this interpersonal therapy that I just uh, discussed in part one of this lecture. But it's something very interesting, and I'd like you to consider this and maybe have some discussions amongst yourselves work with your peers and looking at your case studies and your autobiographies and think about even if they've not been returned to you and marked because of this COVID-19 impossibility, uh, look at how you have looked at a case or yourself and how somebody else has looked at that same case with a different lens. Because while to me, narrative therapy or Adlerian or ACT or interpersonal therapy might be perfect. Somebody else might think, no, I'm definitely cognitive. I'm going CBT with this. I can see it's going to work. Or no, I'm going with REBT because that's working for me. And you might find that when you're even doing your CBT, you might find that gestalt therapy techniques might help. So you are integrating into your CBT gestalt. And another cognitive therapist might have Erickson's models and another cognitive therapist might use a narrative technique of storytelling and um, realigning and reframing languaging. And so most therapies now today are increasingly integrative and incorporate theories and techniques from other theories. And that is okay. But there are some that really don't allow for that. And reality therapists basically employ a specific model. And that specific model is very much followed. So integrating some other things into it is not necessarily possible. And if you were a true Rogerian, you would only consider six conditions, and that would be empathy, acceptance, and genuineness around the, the necessary and sufficient condition to help a client forward. So what those three things are, are just empathy, acceptance, and genuineness. And you may not be using techniques. And we have um, viewed Rogers and seen that all he does is just keep being empathic and keep being loving and kind. And yeah, so just keep in mind that the so existentialist and feminist therapy really do tend to integrate others in that um, interpersonal therapy integrates others. Person-centered can integrate others. And... So just think about what you might choose initially may also be added to. It doesn't need to work in and of itself alone. And again, we've talked about research-supported psychological treatments with much development, of course, in the cognitive and behavioral fields and, as I said, the interpersonal therapy. Um, there is also much growing um, research supported psychological treatment in the fields of narrative therapy especially with indigenous and marginalized populations and you might want to have a look at some of my work in that space and so just for future reference when you're thinking of research and topics 
sometimes what we want to look at is where there's gaps. So take a note of that for future. And especially in COVID-19, you get free libraries. So go and have fun. Be a geek like me and read and read and pull that many articles. You're never going to get through them all, but you hope you will. I have hope. <laughs> and finally, with one last note, um, the beauty of group therapy is well acknowledged by many people. And uh, some people have mentioned this in some of their case analyses and how what we've talked about in class is that it's so invaluable to get input from peers, from your partner, from your family and to get multiple forms of feedback and that is part of group therapy. It is a very complex and tricky uh, therapy to engage in but the it really makes you efficient because you basically set real time limits around the extent of the group how long you're going to run it six to eight sessions this is what we're going to do in the group and then that group ends so you you do like a mini life in a group and you learn a lot <laughs> and everybody's learning a lot because the feedback from everybody is really an important component of growth and for that reason it's likely that group therapy will be around for a long 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 time because I believe that it has amazing outcomes that individual therapy whilst they do have amazing outcomes just cannot replicate uh, in the ways that group therapy can. And so while um, in, there are organizational problems around it, therapy groups um, often require really strict observance of confidentiality and privacy of group members. And sometimes we have groups that touch on very traumatic uh, areas, uh, sexual assault victims, incest victims, um, victims of trauma, like, and so you're working with very sensitive um, issues and people who have lots of triggers. So there's a lot of work in this space that needs to be done. And there are many therapies that incorporate group therapy, so family systems, feminist, gestalt, to a lesser extent, Adlerian, existentialism, person-centered, um, even sort of in the middle, like they can incorporate it um, or not, choice of, choice of therapist and client really, uh, behavior, cog, CBT, REBT, narrative and solution focused and interpersonal would fit in that. Psychodynamic and Jungian, very rarely have groups, Jungian pretty much no, but sometimes you can incorporate groups in a psychodynamic um, therapy. So just to finalise and finish up, when you are thinking about all the different theories and therapies that you have been introduced to, some of them are brand new, some of you have never heard of, so I know that some of you have never heard of ACT, in fact most of you have not 
and some of you have never explored some of the gender-based and feminist therapies and some of you have not ever sort of looked at anything outside this really black and white uh, cognitive or behavioral or um, REBT and psychoanalysis and Jungian you're very aware of those but I think if you can consider that this has exposed you in a very nascent way to the possibility of so many different theories and therapies and asked you to be an active and sort of managerial participant in your own learning to try and decide do I want to focus on one or do I want to continue to just be open to learning so much and then throw myself in at the deep end and just start with something where there is a manual, such as interpersonal psychotherapy, such as CBT, such as REBT. Maybe that's what I'm going to start with and then I can draw in as I grow and along my journey, I will pull in the things that I think work. And as long as I continue to be aware of all these possible issues, gender-based stereotypes, culture-based stereotypes, the failure to address some of these gaps in our theories and therapies and how those failures may negatively impact our clients or the actual addressing of those issues may positively bring about change. And if you put yourself in the center of this and think, I am in charge of me, there is nothing else I'm in charge of. I can only control this moment here and now. And this is important to me right now. So taking this moment to reflect and review and say, yes, I've learned a lot. Yes, it's been a struggle. But wow, have I learned more than I ever thought I would in one term. <laughs> and for that, I want to thank you for sharing this journey with me. I wish you all the, all the world of best things in your ongoing journey. I leave you with this song and I think you'll know it. And while this is an ending of your beginning in this journey into counselling, it's truly only the first step. And I want you to really make the most of it because it's the first step in the next thousand miles. So, so long. Farewell. Alvita Zane, adieu. This pretty sign. So long, farewell, Alvita Zane, good night. I hate to go and leave this pretty sign. I hate to go, but we're never gone, remember. We will always have pieces of this in our heart. And I look forward to seeing you along with my wonderful little Yoda of strength and compassion in the next chapter of your life. Take care.
good luck and I will see you soon. Auf Wiedersehen.